morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Let me invite you to open them up or turn them on or whatever we do these days to get into God's Word. We're looking again at the book of Acts, and this morning we enter that final section. Almost a third of the book of Acts is actually devoted to what could be called, what has been called, the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. It's a hard read. I mean, shipwrecks and and mock trials and beatings and mobs and riots and false accusations and defenses. And it's just one life-threatening situation after another for Paul. Uh, Today, though, I want to look with you at, at the astonishing courage and the creativity that Paul demonstrates in the face of all of this adversity. What is it that the gospel is able to produce even when it comes from inside captivity, the gospel in chains. One of the remarkable things about about the explosive growth of the church is that sometimes it has grown most purposefully when it has been in bondage, when it has been trampled down and pushed under. We want to look at those attributes of courage and creativity and and maybe look for some clues about how we can find those same attributes in our own life. Now, what's the situation that we're going to look at today? One of the challenges about preaching these passages in the book of Acts is, honestly, they're so long that we can't really read the whole thing in the time that we have covenanted to be here together. This incident begins way back in chapter 21. You remember, if you were here last week, that that one whole episode of of Paul's ministry career concluded. He'd spent three years in Ephesus, mighty Ephesus, one of the great cities of the ancient world, one of the strongholds for the gospel in his early days. But after three years, he bids them farewell and says, I need to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a hostile environment for Paul. And he's back in Jerusalem. Word begins to circulate that this this fiery preacher was back again. And they knew his reputation. They knew he had a tendency to teach. Despite the fact that he was a proud Jewish leader, he had the tendency to teach that, that a lot of the, the minute of the Jewish laws, their ceremonial laws, their dietary laws, their sacrificial laws, that those things don't really make you clean before God. Controversial message. Jerusalem, remember, is the religious heart of the Jewish world. So he goes into the heart of the world, and it's like he's sticking a, boy, a needle right in the eye of the people. Moreover, it was known that, that this man had a tendency to, to take what was most meaningful and central to, to the Jewish faith, the promise that God would come, the Messiah. And he took it to far-flung places, way outside the boundaries of Judaism. He took it to the, to the non-Jewish world and began to say to them that, that they need only look to this Messiah, Jesus. And that Jesus would would make things right, would make them clean. They didn't need all of the extra burden of, of all of this minute of the law. And that that was such a controversial message for them in Jerusalem. So he wasn't back very long. One day, one day, the occasion, he's walking to the temple. People recognize him. The shouting begins. The violence begins. A crowd begins to form and a riot breaks out. And he's right there in the middle. The Roman commander, he's in charge of, of Jerusalem. There's actually a garrison centrally located right in the middle of the temple. It's still there today. I mean, if ever we think that this is a new thing, that Jerusalem is the military flashpoint of the world, it's not. Rome situated a garrison right in the middle of the temple. 
And so the commander of the garrison is actually the de facto commander of Jerusalem. And he has to gather his whole garrison. They go into the middle of this mob and they grab Paul and they pull him out. And if you have your Bibles in chapter 21, have a look at verse 35, where it says that when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so severe that he had to be carried out by the soldiers, which means he was beat into unconsciousness to within inches of his life. That situation begins to degenerate from there until Paul finds himself on trial for his life. And that's where we're going to dig in today. He's in prison. He's been charged with sedition, with causing riots, with undermining the public peace. He's been charged with heresy. And all of these charges go before a man named Festus. Strange name, Festus. Uh, Festus is the Roman governor in the province of Judea. Not, not a happy assignment. He's new. He doesn't know any of the background, doesn't know the politics, doesn't know the history. And so he, he passes on the job to a man whose name is going to strike you as eerily familiar, and it should. He hands things over to Herod Agrippa. You might not recognize the second name. You recognize the first, right? Herod. That same clan, that, that same family dynasty that had held power in Judea for generations, that, that same Herod that features into the story of the birth of Jesus. So Paul's on trial for his life, and he's pleading his case before King Herod Agrippa, and off in the sidelines is the Roman governor, Festus. And that's where we're going to pick things up. So if you flip ahead, we're going to be in chapter 26. At long last, Paul is given a chance to speak in his own defense. And everyone's listening. The whole royal entourage is there. All of the elites are there. And it starts at the very top of chapter 26 with Paul giving a defense. He begins by telling the story of his conversion, about how he met Jesus while he's traveling on a road to Damascus. But it's here at the very end that Paul shows that the real goal of his speech, the thing he's really after, isn't a defense at all. In fact, it's surprising. And no one is more surprised than Agrippa when he discovers what Paul is really trying to do. He's not out to defend himself. He's not trying to get himself off the hook. <laughs> he makes the boldest of all possible moves. He could have played it safe, but that's where we're going to look today. What's his real goal? How does he get there? And how does he get the, the chutzpah, the, the poise, the boldness to do what he does? That's the questions for today. So let's start. We're going to read just a little portion in the middle part of chapter 26 and then pray and then dig in. Acts 26, if you'd like to follow along, verse 15. Paul's still speaking about his conversion. He says in verse 15, and then I, Paul, asked, who are you, Lord? And the response comes, I am Jesus. I'm the one you've been persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up. And stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to what you've seen and what you will see of me. And I'm going to rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and then I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There Paul is giving the marching orders for his whole life. 
And in following them, they have marched him right into the corridors of power. And he's on trial for his life. Let's pray. God, we want to join, we want to join Paul for a few minutes right there in the courtroom of Herod in the presence of power. We want to hear what the gospel can say, even in the midst of peril. What can, it, what can it say? How can it muster courage even when life is on the line? How can it be persuasive in the face of people who, who just can't seem to be persuaded? What's at stake here, God? We want to make it not just the conversation about history, what happened long ago. We want to place ourselves at your feet and place yourselves under the leadership of your word. And God, we want to ask, what do you have to say to us this morning? What can you be teaching us from this passage? We, we too want to be bold. We want to have poise. We want to be persuasive in the lives that we live and the things that we say, especially when it comes to speaking the gospel. So be with us and lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What's the goal? You see there's an outline on the back page of your order of service. What's the goal? It's actually a pretty simple answer. If you follow with me ahead in the same chapter, chapter 26, have a look at verses 28 and 29. Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long? I pray to God that not only you, but everyone else who's listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. And Agrippa suddenly realizes, and he's kind of amazed. He realizes what Paul is really up to. <laughs> Paul, you're in trial for your life. Are you, are you really trying to convert me? Is that what you're up to right now? And you know what Paul says? Yeah, and not just you. I'm trying to convert not just you, but everyone else, all the dignitaries, all the witnesses who are here in the room. Paul's actually using his trial as an occasion to persuade. Do you think, Paul, that in such a short time that you could do this? Is this really the right time to do this? Do you really believe that your powers of persuasion are so strong that you can make me a Christian right here in the spot? And Paul says, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if I can get there, he says, short time or long, it doesn't really matter. But I pray, God, that not just you, but everyone else here will be persuaded. So that's, that's Paul's goal. The goal is persuasion. It's bold. It's incredibly bold, and it's risky. How does he get to the goal? And I want to say a few things about, about persuasion. Uh, how is it that, that anyone gets persuaded about anything? And we have entire industries that are built up around this, trying to persuade you that you need this and that hair product, this or that dietary supplement, this or that beauty product. How are we persuaded about anything? And in fact, the answer to that question could take us on a long journey through history. And that would mean we're here for four hours, but we're not going to do that. Okay. But what I would like to do is take you back just, just a short scope in history, about, about 300 years. Because it's about 300 years ago that this argument about persuasion and knowledge really took a sharp turn. 300 years ago, at least in the West, we began what, what came to be known as the Enlightenment Project, unparalleled in the history of humanity. The key idea was this. You could only be persuaded of something. You could only accept something as true 
if it could be rationally and empirically proven. If you could test it and study it and come away with the proof. Reason alone would be your guide. You don't need God. You don't need religion. You don't need revelation or tradition or society. The only way we can be absolutely persuaded something is true is if it's rationally and empirically tested. Now that may sound like that makes complete sense, but realize for 1,700 years that wasn't the case. And in fact, I'm going to suggest to you in a few minutes that that's not the case anymore. But when the project, the Enlightenment project, got underway, uh, that was the key idea, that you can jettison everything else, and what you're left with is reason alone. I think, therefore, I am. The great cogito, right, of, of Descartes. I have a philosophy student here. I have to pretend like I know anything about anything. <laughs> People say, I-, I can't believe in Christianity unless you can give me proof. That's enlightenment thinking. That, that wasn't the question for about 1,700 years. That's enlightenment thinking. You need to know, too, that that's no longer the consensus, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Part of it, and a big part of it, is that we have seen societies divided in ways that they, but they've been unparalleled over the past 200 years, more prone to conflict and disagreement and violence than ever before. And they're deeply divided on viewpoints that they claim are based in reason. The original idea of the Enlightenment project, this was their words, if we can just put aside our beliefs and faith and religion and tradition and use all of our reason, we can come together and stop all the fighting all the time. Well, how's that work for the past 200 years? Let me give you two Just real easy examples. The true great political, economic philosophies of the Enlightenment age, based in reason alone, they claim. Nothing to do with with the Bible or religion or history. No appeal to that thing alone. Based in reason alone were capitalism and communism. Both ideas fundamentally grounded in rationality and testable through empirical science. Has there ever been a conflict in the history of the West more pronounced than the one between those two competing ideologies? Rationality didn't save us from each other. The truth is, we're persuaded by all kinds of things. It's never just reason alone. It's reason plus other stuff. In fact, if anything, the pendulum has swung radically in the other direction. We live now in this age of truthiness and fake news. And people will tend to believe what their culture tells them they should believe, what their friends tell them they ought to believe, what the social networks are saying is true. And we judge its truth not by its own merit, but by the number of people who are following that particular network. In fact, studies have shown that, that we are most likely to accept an argument as true if it comes from somebody that we like. Or even more pronounced, we're likely to accept that argument as plausible and true if it comes from somebody that we want to like us. So, for example, you, you grow up in a little traditional community. You go to church. And everybody around you believes X, Y, and Z, that they know the difference between right and wrong, and it makes sense to you. But then you go off into a new community, 
a, a new culture. You're there at university and, and people are rolling their eyes when it comes to the beliefs that this old little community had that you were raised with. They ridicule them. They laugh at them. Your professors make fun of them. But you're here and you're surrounded by this new group. These are the smart people. These are the cool people. Suddenly, everything they say has to make sense to you. Why? Because research will tell us again and again that we tend to believe things not because they're rational or true, but because they include us in the group to which we want to belong. It's why the massive political movements that baffle the world right now shouldn't baffle us. They're not about what's true. They're about how you belong to the group you want to align yourself with. The key idea, though, is this, that that our beliefs tend to be socially conditioned. They're not just the product of our minds. We're not just brains floating around out there in space. But neither are we just feelings. We're not just emotions. We're, We're social. All of that kind of brings us back to this idea that persuasion is this many faceted thing. Let's take an example. You're you're an employer and you're looking to hire a new employee and you want to be sure that you get the right person. You want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt through all the empirical proof that this is the right person for the job before you ever hire them. Good luck with that. (laughs) You'll never hire anyone if that's your standard. You can use reason to get you to the place where you can look at a candidate and say, Hey, that's probably going to be a good person. That's probably going to be the right fit. Reason can get you to a place of, of probability. But then you're going to have to commit yourself. You're going to have to make the hire. You're going to have to take the risk. And two years from now, you might look back and say, with certainty, that's the best decision we've ever made. That's the best employee that we've ever had. Or maybe you'll say the opposite. But the point is, reason takes you to probability doesn't take you to certainty. If you don't use your reason, the hiring process would be crazy. Just going to eeny, meeny, miny, mo. But, but even when you do use your reason, it'll take you to, to a place. But beyond that place, you have to commit. Persuasion's like that. It, it's just this many-faceted thing. That's exactly what we're going to see here in Acts 26. Paul is out to persuade King Agrippa and, and Festus and, and everybody's there that Christianity is true. How does he do it? How does he do it? Well, he's got this three-faceted persuasion strategy. Here's the first facet. He's going to be rational. Christianity makes sense rationally. This is one of my favorite parts of the book of Acts. So let's have a look here. Chapter 26, verse 24. Are you with me there? Paul's been talking about the fact that he he met Jesus. He met him personally on the road to Damascus. He heard Jesus speak to him. He he encountered Jesus who'd been raised from the dead. Now remember, Festus, the Roman governor, he's an outsider. He's a Gentile. He's come from way outside the circle of Jerusalem. When he hears Paul talking about these things, he interrupts and he says, this is verse 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. You're crazy. Now listen, translation is a hard thing to do. In the English translation, maybe it sounds a little bit dignified. If I were to offer a translation, another one, I'd probably say it like this. Paul, you're nuts. 
you are absolutely bonkers. You've got a bunch of PhDs and yet you flipped. This is crazy talk. And you expect us to believe that. Translation, Alla Richard. Full edition of the Bible available soon. No. <laughs> Notice what Paul says. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and it's reasonable. Now notice he doesn't point to his insides. He doesn't say, well, Festus, I know it's true because it, it fills my heart with joy. I feel it on the inside. He doesn't go first to emotions. What he does do is he goes to all of the publicly available evidence. He says, what I'm telling you is reasonable. And then he turns to Agrippa, to Herod. And he says to him, the king knows all of these things. All the statements about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I can speak freely to him about these things. Verse 26. He turns and he says, I'm convinced that none of this would have escaped his notice. None of it was done hidden off in a corner. What a vivid phrase. Let me tell you how confident Paul is. He says to Festus, you've never lived here. You're a Gentile. I get why this sounds crazy to you. But Agrippa's different. His family are part of a dynasty that had been here for generations. Uh, Agrippa would have been about eight years old, I think, when, uh, when Jesus died. But he grew up in the aftermath. He knew the facts. They were common knowledge. And Paul puts it to him. He could assume that anyone who lived in and around Jerusalem for the past 20, day, or 20 years couldn't just laugh off what Paul was saying. Too much evidence. And so he's able to look Agrippa right in the face and say, you've been living here. You know. These things didn't happen privately. They happened publicly. And you know there's evidence for what I'm saying. You know it. What's the evidence? Living witnesses. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Witnesses to recipients of miracles. Public miracles. Brilliant, astounding miracles. Hundreds and hundreds of miracles. In fact, when the writer of the Gospel of John comes to the end, he says that Jesus did so many wondrous things, they couldn't possibly be contained in this one book. So when you read it in the Gospel, you're really just scratching the surface. And it was done out in the open. People knew, and there were witnesses. What about that whole scandal around the empty tomb? Where was Jesus? Roman guard posted, centurions watching over the entrance, gone. Despite all their best efforts to find and produce the body, squelched the rumors, they weren't able to do so. What about the people who claimed to have encountered the risen Jesus? Paul, one of them. Not just one or two, hundreds and hundreds. Different times, different places, same Jesus. Listen, I... I know about wish fulfillment and wishful thinking and hallucinations, and that can happen. But it doesn't happen to hundreds and hundreds of people in all different times and places. That's not what hallucinations do. That's not mass hypnosis. The evidence was there, so much so that Paul could say with great confidence, you've lived here. You know that you can't dismiss these things. You may not believe them. You don't have to believe them. That's your right. But you can't dismiss them. You know there's a lot of evidence for what I'm saying, so you can't just laugh this off. I'm not nuts. What does Agrippa do? Verse 28. You still with me? Verse 28. Does Agrippa say, you are nuts? No. He says, Paul, you're trying to persuade me, aren't you? It's actually kind of a concession. Not you're crazy. He says, 
you're trying to get me all the way to saying I'm a Christian. Well, I want to tell you, Paul, that I don't think that can be done. But at the very end, what's the last thing he says? This man doesn't belong in prison. He's not crazy. Neither are his arguments. Agrippa knows he's not nuts. Now, mind you, he's dodging the question about, about becoming Christian. He doesn't want that. But he's not saying this guy is crazy. Paul makes a very rational case. And I want you to know that if you have doubts about Christianity, well, there's lots of things that you can do, but, but you can't just reject it because you don't like it. Paul didn't like Christianity either. But Christianity doesn't claim to be based on the likes or the dislikes of people. It claims, it claims to be rooted in fact. It claims to have really happened. So we can say, I don't like Christianity because of this or that thing that they teach or this or that thing that they do or this experience that I had. But hey, Paul was more offended by Christianity than anyone. Why did he become a Christian? Not because he liked it, just the opposite. He hated it. He was trying to stamp it out of existence. He was confronted with facts that he could not deny. He said, these things were not done in a corner. I actually met Jesus, raised from the dead. I, I wished it wasn't true, but it was. And I had a claim on my life. So Christianity, lots of evidence, and you have to look at it. And if you want to be part of small groups that do that, we've got... We've got one going right now called the Truth Project, and we've got another one starting up really soon on the resurrection. And get connected with those things. It makes good sense. But that's not not all that Paul does here. He doesn't make just a, a rational case. Nobody gets all the way to faith just through rational argument. Nor does anybody doubt Christianity just because of reason. Usually they've had experiences, bad experiences. Nobody rejects God because of reason. Nobody embraces God just because of reason. So Paul is going to show next that the gospel makes not just rational sense, but personal sense. It rings true emotionally. I'm going to back you up to the start of the chapter again. Chapter 26 from verse 1. Glance through there. We... We summarized this. We didn't read it, but we summarized it. Here's the basic point Paul's trying to make. I was a Pharisee, a religious leader. I, I was the strictest of all Jews. I lived to honor the law of God. That was the meaning of Paul's life. I, I want to honor the ways of God. At what point in his life, Paul opens a kind of window to what was going on in his life at that time. He's writing to to a church in Rome. So Romans in chapter 7. He says, I wanted to be a moral person. I wanted to be upright. But the the more that I studied the ways of God, the more I came to see that I wasn't even close to being the kind of person I wanted to be. On the outside, he looked confident. Fiercely religious. Absolutely moral. On the outside, sometimes superiority, condescension, self-righteousness. But on the inside, inferiority. Fear, insecurity, guilt, shame. He was being eaten up inside. And then Jesus comes into his life. The gospel starts to work in him. The gospel helps him to understand for the first time why he was being eaten up on the inside. The gospel explained him. And it resolved him. 
It explained why he was such a mess, what was wrong with him. And then it resolved the basic plot line of his life. I want to honor the law of God. That was the narrative of his life. Only through Jesus will I ever be able to do it. Listen, none of you are Orthodox Jews, I'm pretty sure. Right? So how does this apply to us? You can recognize maybe that there are parts of Christianity that make rational sense, but, but here's the point where maybe you want to connect with Paul. You know you're beginning to connect with Jesus personally, emotionally. It's beginning to make emotional sense when something deeper happens than just the mind. Maybe you've heard about it for years. You've been coming to church. You've been sitting in the back row as far away from the action as you can get. But, or you've been raised in church and people have told you about the gospel. But, but it's only when you start to see and to feel that it's in this Jesus that the plot lines of my life begin to resolve. It's in this Jesus that my identity, my purpose, my significance, they're all revealed. It's only when it begins to make personal sense that, that the full persuasive power of the gospel comes into your life. It's not just here. It's always here and here. Let me say just one more thing. Paul doesn't just say that Christianity makes rational sense and it makes emotional sense. He actually says it makes biblical sense. And I I know that might not be much of an argument for us today, but have a look with me here. In verse 22, he says, I'm not saying anything beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And he's speaking here again to King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. What he's saying is easy to miss, but not only does the gospel make rational sense, not only is there evidence for it in history, not not only does the gospel make personal sense, make sense of my life, but it comes fully alive, and the Bible comes fully alive when you read it about as being about Jesus. And so you can hear people say, and, and you'll understand what they mean, I've read the Bible my whole life, but it was only just recently that the lights went on and it began to make sense. I thought I believed the Bible. I thought I understood the Bible. But it's actually when I began to say, okay, if Jesus is this, and if he's done this, and, and if his life was about this, then when I go to the Bible and read it, it comes alive. The rational and the personal come together in the biblical. The rational and the personal come together in the biblical. Let me give you one example of this. Dick Lucas, an Anglican preacher, talked about an account he had some years ago. Uh, he had a friend, a longtime friend, skeptic, who walked into his office, as he had many times, and, and said, Dick, I don't believe you know that. I'm a skeptic. But, but you know, as always, that if you could produce for me one watertight argument for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity, I'd set aside all of my doubts and I'd come with you, I believe. Here's how Dick responded. So, well, what if God didn't send a watertight argument What if he sent a watertight person against whom no arguments can be made? What do you mean, the guy said. I challenge you to do this. 
Take one of the Gospels. Take Mark. Take John. Spend some time and really get to know Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did. And you're going to have a lot of trouble explaining him away. When you look at his claims, when you look at his character, when you look at the things that he's done, you're going to say, wait a minute. There's just something about that man. It'll be rational. It'll be personal and existential. But it'll be biblical. Because God didn't send a philosophy textbook. He sent a person. A watertight person. That's why... So many people have come to a deep and grounded and authentic faith just by leafing through the pages of the Bible, brought to their knees just by reading the biblical account of Jesus. They came fully alive through the gift of Scripture. It's rational, it's personal, it's biblical. I said that was the last thing. This is the last, last thing. No, it's, I think this is important. Uh, when, when you see Paul doing this, don't you want to ask, how did he get the, the resolve, the courage to do that? Where does he get the boldness? The, I use the word chutzpah. Do you know that word, chutzpah? Where, where does it come from? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Agrippa, you're right. I am trying to convert you. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen the evidence. You believe the prophets. Go read them. Where does he get that kind of poise? Because God knows I need it, and maybe you do too, right? That kind of courage. There's this one very pregnant statement that Paul makes in verse 18. He's describing the fruits of salvation. Have a look at verse 18 with me. What does salvation consist of? It says in verse 18, so that they may receive... This is talking in the language of gifts. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place. Would you do this? Would you underline or highlight that? Or I don't know what you do when it's electronic. You can still highlight it. Yeah. Would you underline that word place? A place normally means a home, but it's more than that. It's not just some place that you eat and sleep. A place is where you belong. It's where you finally, at last, really fit in. And Paul says, you receive it, you don't achieve it. In fact, when we read it, it looks like that that word receive is talking about forgiveness. We receive forgiveness of sins. Actually, the grammar, the grammar of of the Bible in that in that sentence is is pointing to the place. What you receive is the place. And in that place, there is forgiveness of sins. You're not just forgiven, you're given a place. It's not just you're set free from prison. It's you're set free and then you're accepted, adopted into something new. This is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples. Even now, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Here's what that means. Paul knows that he has the love and the high regard and the delight of the ultimate king of kings in the universe. So what does it matter what goes on in the mock trial of these petty dictators? That's where he gets his courage. It gives him boldness. It gives him peace. If you believe, if you, if you really know that you have a place with God forever, doesn't that mean that, that nothing will cow you, that nothing will overawe you, that 
that nothing should shock you or crush you. Don't you, don't you want, don't you need that kind of poise? I do. Don't you want that kind of peace? That's the fruit of the gospel. It makes sense rationally and personally and biblically. But the fruit is courage and creativity and assurance that we have a place. I'm going to stop there because I want to make sure that there's a time for you to respond to how God may be speaking in your life, what that next step may be for you. So we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. I'll invite the worship team to come and join me here on the stage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us the example of the life of, of people like Paul who knew that he had the love of the, of the ultimate king and just wasn't afraid of what any earthly courts or kings or situations could do. No peril or danger. He had courage, boldness, and he had joy. And, and Lord knows we need it too. There are some here today who absolutely need that. As they're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, they're They're desperate with worry about what the future holds or they're afraid that there are people and situations in their life that that have an unbreakable claim on them and we want to break it in Jesus' name. We pray, God, that in your word you would meet us, that you would persuade us. And I pray for those who who already believe. God, we want to believe more deeply. We want to have more of you. We want that courage and boldness that Paul had, but Lord, especially, I want to pray for those who may have heard some of this and have felt you stirring in their life, and they've been searching for a long time, but they need to decide, they need to be persuaded. God, help them to embrace the gospel, to see the sense of it, reasonable, personal, biblical be persuaded of its truth. And whether it's a long time or a short time, I pray that everyone here might believe, that everyone hearing might know the wonder of the gospel, the joy of being able to live our lives in Jesus' presence and in his name. We pray in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.